Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The new EU Confidential podcast gets started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Bayer. At Bayer, we are raising the bar on transparency by inviting stakeholders to participate in the upcoming EU glyphosate re-registration process. Also, we will evolve our engagement policies that ground our interactions with scientists, journalists, regulators, and the political sphere in transparency, integrity, and respect. To learn more, visit www.bio.com. I want a commission that is led with determination, European Green Deal, an economy that works for people, protecting our European way of life. Welcome to the new EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and this week we're going green. Later, you'll hear from Swedish Environment Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Isabella Löfven, and from 18-year-old Adelaide Charlier, who's a Youth for Climate coordinator here in Belgium. Our colleague, Bjarke Smith-Meyer, will give us a glimpse into the European Central Bank and its potential to go green, with Christine Lagarde at the helm. But first, we have the podcast quartet. Since last week, we've all gone our separate ways. Matt is back in Berlin. Reem is keeping tabs on Macron in Paris. And when we recorded earlier, Annabelle was dodging mice in the UK Parliament basement. I'm in this tiny room in the basement. And I'm terrified that... In the park? Okay. I came in here the other day and found another journalist asleep on the floor. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) It's always a bit of a worry about what you're going to find. We'll get to the European Commission's new Green Deal, which was announced this week by President-elect Ursula von der Leyen, and we'll also have a bit of Brexit rapid-fire questions. But first, I asked the crew to come up with their own European Commission vice-presidential titles, having a bit of fun with this week's top news story here in Brussels. Did everybody think of an, uh, a European Commission vice-presidential title? I did, I did. Mine is the vice-president for the preservation of Esperanto as the official EU language. That is important work. Uh, I was thinking of being the executive vice-president for the preservation of the European way of lunch, ah, which is very, very important. That's a Brussels specialty. Yeah, and it's under threat, under threat. So very much, uh, you know, top of the new commission's agenda. Well, mine was a bit more serious. I was thinking, given that we're going to talk about Brexit forever and a day, that there probably should be an executive vice-president of Brexit. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure it'd be that fun. <laughs> no. Well, there are a few people here who could be class. So this is just to explain to our uh, patient listeners, 
we are doing these titles partly because the, U- the new European Commission was unveiled this week, and it does have some very uh, curious titles. There are some people who could probably claim to be the the Brexit commissioner. There's the Slovenian commissioner designate is responsible for crisis management, so maybe that's just code for Brexit. But we also have the vice president for protecting our European way of life. We have uh, somebody who is responsible for inter-institutional relations and foresight. And there's a few others here as well. An economy that works for people as opposed to hedgehogs or, or aliens. A uh, vice president who's responsible for Europe fit for the digital age and various others as well. So that's that's why we're talking about that. And maybe that just brings us into first to say that this is a, a goes green edition of the podcast. So we talk a bit more about sustainability and green themes than we would uh, maybe in other editions. And the Green New Deal was one of the centerpieces of the new commission. It was one of the things that Ursula von der Leyen stressed. And she's made Franz Timmermans, uh, the outgoing first vice president, the vice president for this European Green Deal, which she's promised to bring forward in the first 100 days of the new commission. But how's the new commission uh, going down where you are? Reem, what does France, what do French officials make of this new commission? French officials were, first of all, extremely satisfied and happy with the portfolio that was given to their commissioner delegate, Sylvie Goulard, internal market. It sounds really simple, but actually it just sounds like a mammoth portfolio that includes the internal market, includes parts of the digital world and includes this new DG that they're creating for uh, space industry and defense. So on that level, the French are quite satisfied. And actually, people always say that Europe isn't interesting or that citizens around Europe aren't very interested in these nominations. But in fact, today, this afternoon, the front page of Le Monde is about the commission. Okay, and just to, for the uh, the uninitiated, a DG is a Directorate General, so these are the kind of bureaucracies, if you like, and it's considered in Brussels pretty important that you have command of these uh, Directorates General. Those are the kind of levers of, of power. Matt, how are they seeing it in uh, Berlin? Obviously, they have a, a German Commission president for the first time in, in many decades. Any other reaction to the commission being announced? Yeah, I think because they didn't really have, you know, any any surprises there because von der Leyen is already in place that it was less dramatic on the German side. And I was surprised at, uh, you know, how, how little coverage it's gotten. I mean, it's been covered by, you know, the serious media, obviously, but there's not a huge amount of discussion about it. And uh, the lead story was that Trump fired uh, his national security advisor, John Bolton. So you can see how how big of a story it is it is here they did have it on on the front page but just as kind of a brief so it's 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 not something that is is really driving the debate in 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 Germany mm. annabel obviously britain was not included the uk is a member under the sort of current procedures. It's still a member and should nominate a commissioner, but Boris Johnson has said he's not going to do that. What are people um, looking at in particular when they look at this commission, which would be you know, their counterpart if Brexit finally happens? These are the people they'd be sitting across the table from as they try and do a trade deal. Yeah, well, I think what was going on in Brussels yesterday sort of did barely register in London. I mean, the most eye-catching thing was the trade commissioner um, Hogan, who's an ally of the Irish Prime Minister. So so people sort of briefly noticed that. But it's not something that's been given a lot of thought about in the Trade Department, in the Brexit Department, because they're very much focused on 
domestic issues. I will get to Brexit in a bit, but as I say, you know, today we're going to talk a bit more about green issues. As I say, Franz Timmermans was unveiled as, as the guy who's going to deliver this European Green Deal. And there's a lot of talk about this commission being the greenest ever. Ursula von der Leyen has certainly made that a priority. How is that going to go down in other countries? And how big a deal now are, are green politics and green policies in France, for example, Reen? You know, the Green Deal idea... Uh, was actually taken on board by Macron and his party at the launch of their European Parliament election campaign, even though their detractors and the opposition um, has accused the Macron government for the past two years of greenwashing and not doing enough in terms of the environment. Um, And so it's clear that environmental issues are becoming more and more important for citizens, for people in France. Right, but I guess Macron's also faced a backlash by trying to be too green, or you could certainly see it that way, right? That's kind of what sparked the Yellow Jacket protest movement, the Gilets Jaunes, although it was obviously about much more than that. Oh, you're absolutely right that he has faced actually backlash. So on both ends, on the one end, people accuse him of, of not doing enough. And on the other, people accuse him, like the Yellow Vests, of... Uh, let's say, wanting people of sort of lower income or middle class uh, to pay for the lion's share of what is going to be needed in order to move the country into a more environmentally friendly place. And he actually had to back down on that carbon tax in order for the Yellow Vest uh, protest to to kind of calm down a bit. Mm. Matt, the Greens are, are big in Germany. There was a Green surge in the European Parliament election, which came you know, to a considerable extent from Germany. Is Germany's next chancellor going to be a green? How centre stage are are green politics in Germany now? Well, I wouldn't rule it out. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that it'll definitely be a green, but just the fact that it's in the realm of possibility speaks for itself. And I think the reason is, is that here there's almost, you know, a uh, panic about climate change. I mean, you know, people are kind of, going hysterical about a lot of these issues and you know we saw it this summer again where you know you had these hot spells and you know there were then uh, all, all of these calls to start introducing tolls to, to drive into inner cities and uh, to introduce a, a co2 tax on people and these are issues that are much more present here it's my impression than than in other parts of europe and you're seeing that in the uh, in the political debate. Yeah, and I think that the reaction here in Brussels to the announcement of Timmermans as this kind of super vice president charged with implementing this Green Deal was obviously a general kind of welcome from environmentalists and Greens, but people obviously waiting to see how this is actually going to be done because there are a lot of big issues here, particularly Central and Eastern Europe, much more dependent still in fossil fuels. There's talk that there should be a, a just transition fund, which would somehow you know, ease that transition to more renewables but none of this is going to be pain-free and I think uh, you know it's hard to be against saving the planet so everybody's in favor of the principle but you know it's it's when it comes to actually implementing some of this stuff that it that it's going to get tricky. We'll get back to some more green issues uh, later in the podcast but I thought we would uh, take a little break and do Brexit question time. Annabelle I hope you're uh, at the dispatch box. Let's hear from uh, John Burkow just before he, he bows out. Reem, why don't I ask you about the threatened French veto? Will they actually do it? 
Oh, if I had a penny for every time someone has asked me this question over the past few weeks, and every time I have had to ask that question to French officials, if I knew I would be president of France, right? That is the only person who knows if that's going to be the step that France takes. That being said, France never wants to be alone taking such a decision that will have, you know, such serious consequences. We saw it the first two times the UK asked for an extension. And in fact, French officials at the time, both times, reminded us that in the end, even though French President Macron took a a hard stance, you know, he was being the bad cop, in the end, he didn't use his veto. I doubt it's going to be different this time. But I am also sensing that French officials are kind of over it, you know. They deeply believe that time for time doesn't help. It's a complex situation. It's not going to get less complex with more time. That is what they tell us. Uh, And so they keep saying, well, since this is a sovereign decision by the British, then it is the British who have to, you know, suggest something, propose something. And so far, they feel like that hasn't been done. I'm sorry, I know this doesn't really clarify much, but that's kind of the murkiness we've all been operating under lately. Matt, I think you had a question for Annabelle. My question is whether the Tories would ultimately support a Northern Ireland-only deal in the customs union in order to get a deal done? Well, potentially. I mean, if he's willing to lose 21 of his own colleagues, why not lose another 10 more in the DUP? But actually, if you dig a little bit deeper, I'm not sure that a Northern Ireland-only backstop helps him arithmetically. um, Because actually, I I was talking to a couple of um, Brexiteers earlier today and saying, you know, what about what about this Northern Ireland only backstop, you know, that would give you your English clean break Brexit that you've always dreamed of. And um, they, you know, they were really strongly pushing back against that. Yeah, even privately, they say, no, no, we're the unionist party, we're not going to sell out the DUP. And and actually, the, the two have been working very closely, the hard Brexiteers and the DUP. So I think that it's unlikely to be the sort of thing that unlocks a deal for the Prime Minister, because ultimately, if he wants to get a deal through, it's it's the Labour votes that he needs to get. And for them, the backstop isn't really the issue, Northern Ireland or all of the UK. Either way, it doesn't really, doesn't really matter. Annabelle, I've got another one for you. Is it possible that Boris Johnson will send two letters to the European Union, one officially as Prime Minister saying, Parliament requires me to ask you for a delay because we don't have a deal, And another one saying, uh, but actually, I don't really want that. So please ignore my uh, previous email. I wouldn't be surprised if they tried it. I think if they think they can get away with it, they will. And the lawyers would have something to say about it. And I suspect that they would face all sorts of legal challenges if they tried it. But it's a good stunt. You know, let's, let's face it. If they think they can do it, they will. And if Boris Johnson's facing an election, which he almost certainly is, sticking to his pledge to leave on October the 31st, this this sort of symbol of sending the two letters, I can see it being something that he would try. OK, any final questions? Yeah, I had a question. I don't know who wants to take it, but is it too conspiratorial to think about this? But could the UK get someone like Orban 
to veto an extension. That has been floated as well, right? Matt, do you want to take a crack at that one? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, you just you never know what Orban's going to do, but I would be surprised if he would agree to something like that because he's going to, uh, you know, remain in the EU and he's got enough problems as it is. So I would think that he would want to toe the party line on this one because there'd be little upside for him personally, you know, in taking such a step. Yeah, I think we had the kind of round of these stories before the last time there were, you know, fears among the, particularly among the kind of arch remainers, if you like, that somehow Farage was going to get Salvini in Italy to, you know, veto any talk of an extension. And, you know, that just didn't come to pass because, as Matt says, these countries are remaining in the club. They want to be in good terms, especially with the most powerful members. There's not a lot in it for them to take a a step like this. And a a point we made in a story this week here, uh, just in general, I think, from the EU point of view, uh, bearing in mind to come full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning, the new commission, that new commission headed by Ursula von der Leyen is meant to take office on the 1st of November. There's nobody in the EU who wants her first day in office, that commission's first day in office, to be dealing with a no-deal Brexit. And so I don't think that the UK has to offer much to get an extension, even though people will say, oh, you've got to give us reasons. I don't think you'll need much of a reason other than let's just postpone this nightmare scenario for at least a few more months. And and let me maybe sort of round out this this Brexit section with a tweet today by Bernard Pivot, who's a legendary French cultural journalist, who tweeted, and I'm going to use some words that we don't usually use on podcasts, but he tweeted, quotation, I suggest entering the word Brexit into the French language. If you know anything about the French language and the French, you know that this is almost blasphemous because they never want to enter anything English into their language. But he continues, it will designate a cacophonic and insoluble debate, a cluster meeting, a chaotic assembly. And for example, you could use it in a sentence like the co-op assembly ended in Brexit. (laughs) And I think that gives us a pretty good sense of how at least some of the French feel. It, it's gotten a lot of good play on French Twitter. It's been retweeted thousands of times already. And it's gone down well with about half of the UK, <laughs> not so well with the other half. Yeah, as everything on Brexit does. But I think, yeah, I wonder if, you know, in centuries to come, people would actually forget the original meaning of Brexit and it would just become this thing, this kind of mess that you can't get out of. Maybe that's going to be the the longest lasting legacy of Brexit. Who knows? Well, we've ended up talking about Brexit for quite a long time again in what was meant to be the kind of quickfire bit. So uh, Christina, our producer, will work her magic to crunch that all down so that it doesn't dominate the podcast again. Guys, thanks very much. Talk to you next week. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. A message from Bayer. Beginning now, we are raising the bar in transparency, sustainability, and how we engage with our stakeholders. As a new leader in agriculture, we have a heightened responsibility and the unique potential to advance farming for the benefit of society and the planet. In the year following our acquisition of Monsanto, we have heard questions and concerns about our role in agriculture. These concerns matter to us and we want to address them. To ensure future advancements, we need to change. We will pilot a program inviting stakeholders to participate in the upcoming EU glyphosate re-registration process. We will invest approximately 5 billion euros in additional methods for combating weeds over the next decade. And innovation will cut the ecological footprint of our agricultural portfolio. With our solutions, we will reduce the environmental impact by 30% by 2030. 
To learn more, visit www.buyer.com. Our environment reporter Paula Tama caught up this week with Isabella Löving, who's Deputy Prime Minister of Sweden and Minister for the Environment. Paula sat down with the Minister at the European Climate Foundation offices here in Brussels. Let's listen to some of the highlights of their discussion. So Sweden has ambitious plans to become climate neutral by 2045. It also is one of the few countries that have inscribed this objective into a law. First of all, I was wondering why exactly 2045 and not 10 years earlier as Finland is doing or five years later as the EU is preparing itself to announce. We did really our homework very well. Before setting the target, we created a parliamentary group where all the political parties except one, which is the Sweden Democrats, which is the extreme right party, worked together, did a lot of, of research, visited the UK and uh, learned from their climate law and how that was set up, and then agreed on the targets. And I think this is the strength of the Swedish climate law because this sends out the signal to the industry and to the whole society that irrespective of what government will be in place, probably, because we don't think the Sweden Democrats will be, uh, let's say, leading a government, the targets will remain. We have heard President-elect Ursula von der Leyen to commit herself to a climate law which will if the four holdouts agree, uh, commit Europe to climate neutrality by 2050. However, for some people that are protesting in the streets, 2045 or 2050 is very far in the future. They're concerned that we only have 12 years to change the course of affairs. And so far, emissions are rising and they say politicians are not doing enough. Are they right? Yes, obviously they're right. I mean, we've known about climate change uh, for decades already. I mean, it was first discovered by, <laughs> in fact, a Swedish scientist uh, back in uh, more than 100 years ago. Politicians has, have not reacted uh, to this threat. Uh, and, and this is really something that uh, we have to take responsibility for now. I mean, we can't just blame the generations that uh, came before us or, or say that it's another country's fault or whatever. Each and every one of us has to take its responsibility. Is that what you're going to tell world leaders in New York on September 23rd? Absolutely, but maybe not phrasing it that way, because I think, again, that uh, talking about only about like the burden sharing and the heavy responsibility uh, is kind of cr also creating the atmosphere that this is something negative. In fact, it's something positive. If we succeed, if we don't succeed, it's going to be really a catastrophe. And we're already seeing the consequences of one degree warming. Imagine three degrees warming by the end of the century, and it's not going to stop by three degrees warming. It's going to continue after the end of the century. So we have so much to lose, and we've got so much to gain. And I think us as human beings, we're, we're very creative. And as soon as we start getting an idea or getting your your mind starting to, to work and imagining new things, then they can happen. But as long as you don't al allow these new, new ideas to come into your mind, then nothing will happen. It actually struck me that the climate uh, youth movement was originated in Sweden, because mm. Sweden is one of the wealthiest nations in Europe and therefore in the world. And 
by 2017, one with the most ambitious climate plan, which was actually already law by the time that Greta Thunberg, the Swedish climate activist, started striking on the steps of the parliament. So what lesson do you draw from that? Some critics say, well, it's all well for wealth nations to worry about the environment, but we have to grow. Well, I think we can have we can create wealth without destroying the planet. And if we destroy the planet, then people are going to suffer. Uh, so that's very clear. And I think maybe one of the reasons that uh, a youth from Sweden has become this uh, leader or, or reacted the way that everyone kind of can relate to, but also because she has the possi- had the possibility to go into a public school, learn about all these things. We Yes, we're a wealthy na- nation, but she also sees the paradox in that we teach or she has been taught in school about the the climate crisis and the threat and what's going to happen if we don't act and then she looks at all the adults and and in her uh, mind nothing is happening nothing is changing you all you see all the cars you see all the airplanes you see all the industries emitting still and nothing is changing and uh, the consumer society with all the fashion clothes and etc you know nothing is changing basically so of course we we need to we need to change and i think this message resonates with with young people they don't have a problem with uh, kind of eating a little less meat or or kind of going by bicycle or or changing some of the behavior it's their future that's going to be threatened if all of us don't mm-hmm. change one other thing that worried me is, is there a lot of backlash against this climate movement? And some aspects of it are being really ridiculized by the media and not only, such as Flixcam. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but that is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. the shame of flying. Mm. Is that something that helps the cause or is it a major risk of politicizing the debate in that way? Well... <laughs> Not having the debate at all is not helping. You know, it's been kind of very silent on this on these matters. Coming from the Green Party, we've been fighting for these issues for for thirty or even more years, but not a lot ha- has changed. So I think this debate among young people uh, is is really something that needs to happen if we're going to see change, and. Um, of course, there's going to be backlashes, and of, of course, there's going to be also exaggerations from from some parts. But uh, as a whole, I think it's uh, something very, very positive that we we see uh, um, kind of a rebellion against uh, this generation destroying the planet for all future generations. And finally, on a personal note, what have you changed in your day-to-day life? Well, I I became very environmentally uh, engaged when I was around 20s. Uh, so I started changing as much as much as possible when I was at that age. And then I got I became a mother, and I tried to do everything to sort uh, waste. Uh, but uh, in the end, what happened to me was that I got engaged politically because I found that. Is whatever I can do on a personal note, it's not enough. We need to change society. We need to make society much more uh, environmentally friendly and easy for everyone to live their daily lives uh, in an environmentally sustainable way. 
And that's why I got into politics. Thank you so much, Minister, for joining us. And we really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Sweden's Minister for the Environment, Isabella Lövin. Our reporter Paula also had the chance this week to connect with one of the climate movement's younger members. Take a listen to part of her conversation with Adelaide Charlier. The 18-year-old is the Youth for Climate coordinator for the French-speaking part of Belgium. Adelaide, for those who may not be familiar with the Youth for Climate movement, how would you describe it? Here in Belgium, we are asked a lot, what do you want people to do or what are we supposed to do? And we always say, well, we don't have the answer because we are just youth trying to alight the message of experts. The experts, they know the problem and they have the solutions. So we are just here to try to make a bridge, build a bridge in between the politicians that have a whole other idea of the world than the experts who try to shout the urgency of this problem. Your movement has called for a mass mobilization around climate issues in the week going from the 20th to the 27th of September. Over a thousand events in over a hundred countries will take place, addressing world leaders meeting in September at the UN Climate Summit on the 23rd. So what is your message for heads of state and governments? Well, first of all, we are all also meeting all around the world to support Greta Thunberg, who will be over there, who will pass the message, which is the same for most of the youth and most of the citizens who will be walking on the 20th and who will be doing the actions between the 20th and the 27th of September. And our message always stays the same. It's please take your responsibility, face the problem, and we know we need to change the way we are living today, and we want the help of politicians, we want the help of leaders from the world, because individual actions are not enough to save our planet. Some critics have said that your message to follow the science is overly simplistic. They say that it's much more complicated than that, because changing at the scale and pace needed will heavily impact our economies which is ultimately people's jobs and people's lives. So what would you say to the argument that goes, not everybody can afford to be climate friendly because we're too busy to make ends meet? We need a change in our society because we cannot keep living like we are today. So people that say that it will affect our economy, yes, it will, but it can also be in a good way. There are a lot of economists who say that it will actually have a good impact on our economy, but we need to change the way it is. Of course, there are jobs today that we will not be able to keep because they are the ones who are ruining our planet. But we will switch them. We need to take them in the transition and giving them another job. During your mobilization, you've been the victim of personal attacks and a lot of criticism. What do you think are some of the biggest misperceptions about the movement from the media or older generations? I think the ones criticizing us is mainly because our message is hard to listen, because it means that we will change and it will affect our society today because we need to switch road and go through a transition to a new society. And I also heard a sociologist who said that all those critics are mainly because we are in the majority young women who are in the media talking about this. And so that is also hard for middle-aged men to listen to that because they feel like we are telling them what to do and that's also even harder to hear a hard message carried by women that might also be a fact. Perhaps you're aware that 
This week, the EU has unveiled its new commissioner and Franz Timmermans, who is currently a Dutch member of the European Parliament, will be the Commission's executive vice president in charge of the European Green Deal. That's a hefty title to mean that basically he'll be the man at the helm of EU climate policy. Do you, as Youth for Climate, already have some initial reactions on this post, which is the first of its kind. It's always great to put climate change as a priority, and that is what we are demanding, and we want every single politician to put it as a priority, and we, are, we want these leaders um, to, to face the problem and to take into account what experts are saying. And so we need actions, and if that is the first step, then that, that is amazing. But we need those first steps to be able to, to take every other step. That was Adelaide Charlier with Youth for Climate. And now for a special treat. Our finance reporter Bjarke Smith-Meyer takes us to last week's hearing with Christine Lagarde. The IMF chief was in the hot seat at the European Parliament, which will weigh in on her candidacy to become the president of the European Central Bank. What does this have to do with going green? Just take a listen. Central banking isn't exactly the sexiest topic in the world. It generally consists of old men in grey suits giving super technical speeches while paying the utmost attention to every single word they say. In order to maintain convergence and reap lasting benefits from the single market... This, for example, is the president of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, giving a speech in June. ...become all the more important given the headwinds See, not exactly engaging, but that could all change. Draghi's eight-year term is running out in November and the EU's leaders have picked a rock star in the financial world to take over from him. And that rock star is Christine Lagarde. Now, for those that don't know her, Lagarde is the boss of the International Monetary Fund, which is kind of like the world's lender of last resort. Well, it looks like she's going to take over from the ECB president, Draghi, and she's got some big ideas. One of the biggest is using the ECB to fight climate change. The question is, can she really do it? But before we answer that question, I just want to explain to you how big of a deal this silver-haired 63-year-old French woman is. The first point to make is that her nomination for the ECB was actually a surprise. But don't take my word for it. So I'm Guntram Wolf and I'm the director of Brügel here in Brussels. And as he points out, Lagarde wasn't seen by many people in the central banking world as the ideal candidate for the job. Because um, she is not uh, an economist, she's not been a central banker, and uh, I think traditionally um, everybody had always assumed that the ECB and the major central banks need to be run by people that grew up uh, with central banking. And she has a very sort of peculiar career in the sense that she was a lawyer. And then a French politician before she ended up at the International Monetary Fund. So maybe not the ideal candidate for the job, but the times, they are a-changing. And the ECB has evolved into a hugely powerful beast with a load of firepower. How much firepower do you ask? How about an easy money program worth 2.6 trillion euros? What we see here is an institutional shift from 
a more technocratic interpretation of what a central bank is doing, basically setting the interest rate to uh, something much more complex and political. And this is where Lagarde and fighting climate change come back in. What if the old boring ECB with its numbers, dry speeches and number crunching machines went green? All those trillions of euros could then help finance green companies or projects even by buying their bonds, which is just another fancy way of saying an IOU. Lagarde said as much just last week when she was here in Brussels for a hearing with European parliamentarians who were grilling her to see if she was good enough to get the job as ECB president. She made it super clear to the parliamentarians that fighting climate change is really important to her. My personal view on those issues is that any institution has to actually have climate change risks and protection of the environment at the core of their understanding of their mission. And the ECB, under Lagarde, would be no different. Primary mandate, price stability, of course. But it has to be embedded in that, that climate change and environmental risks are mission critical. And you guessed it, she mentioned the 2.6 trillion euro easy money program as a way to make the ECB more green. There are a couple of problems with this idea. One, we legally don't know what green is, or means, for that matter. Windmills, they might be green, but is nuclear energy green? What about clean coal? That's supposed to be a transitional energy source. What about that? We don't know. It's something that lawmakers in Brussels are trying to figure out right now. And as far as Lagarde is concerned, they should try and figure it out soon. Because then the ECB could use it, this green labeling process, to encourage sustainable companies and remove carbon emissions that go into the air and thereby helping save the planet. There is another problem. There aren't that many green bonds out there for the ECB to buy. And that's important because... The ECB cannot exclusively invest its, you know, 2.6 trillion portfolio into green bonds because there's not enough of a market. But if it signals that it will be increasing and will be intensively looking at that, then it's also for the market something to register in terms of where it's going to direct its funding. Sounds great, right? But... Take it with a pinch of salt, uh, um, at least as a journalist uh, who's looking for the nice headline. That's Karsten Brzezewski. Chief economist of uh, ING uh, Germany. And he doesn't totally buy the idea that Lagarde's political rhetoric on fighting climate change can fully integrate itself into the ECB. And the reason for that is... She's no longer a politician. And central bankers are no politicians with their own agendas. I think the ECB will not be fully green in five years from now. This doesn't make sense because the economy of uh, the Eurozone will not be all green. And that's the irony in all this. No matter how big Lagarde's dreams and aspirations are, and how many millions, billions, or trillions she might have her disposal soon... The ECB can only play a symbolic role, but uh, as with so many other things these days, um, the ball is again in the court of governments and, and of the European Commission. That's all we have time for on this edition of EU Confidential Goes Green. As always, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and our next episode will be a special edition which will air over the weekend. 
It will feature US Ambassador to the EU Gordon Sondland with Politico's own Ryan Heath, who's making a curtain call appearance on the podcast. The podcast quartet will continue its normal pan-European duties next week. For now, it's a special thanks to Paula Tama and Bjarke Smith-Meyer and to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.